0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. And this week, I learn an enormous amount from the completely fascinating Dr. Neil Gilbride, who is Senior Lecturer in Education at the University of Gloucestershire. And we'll be delving into Neil and his colleagues' research into adult ego development, and its impact on sense-making in a school context, looking at school principles. Now, I didn't really know what any of those words meant in that title until I uh, read the paper and spoke to Neil in more detail. What I can tell you is throughout the course of the conversation, what we keep coming back to is a really deep examination of why it is so challenging and complex to be a leader in a school versus other types of contexts and settings. So I hope I've whetted your appetite for an absolutely fascinating listen. And as ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For an in-depth, authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello, today I am joined by Dr. Neil Gilbride, who is Senior Lecturer in Education at the University of Gloucester. Hi, Neil.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm good, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And we are gonna talk a little bit about your fascinating research into ego, different stages of ego development, and um, school principals, and sense-making. So those are a lot of terms that I've just thrown in there, and we'll come back to them as we go in the discussion. But can we just kick off by you giving us a bit of information about yourself and your background for people who are not familiar with your work?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, my name's Neil. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Gloucestershire. My research, my, my kind of academic background is I'm primarily a psychologist um specializes in adult development I worked in education for how old am I now 33 so I'm close to pretty much 15 years kind of education and children's services um and I used to be a teacher I used to teach in East London um and moved to Swindon um I've worked across different roles in the education sector um, I moved to the university about five years ago. Um, and it's been, you know, it's taken about five years to, to kind of come to the conclusion of this, this piece of work around, um, adult ego development and how head teachers, school principals, um, you know, answer the tricky challenges that they have in their, their workplace. And so that's, yeah, to a little bit about me, my background, um, and how, starting to think about how we got to this project. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Which, yeah. so
0: you can tell us a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you've got your background there um, in psychology, but why why particularly did you want to do this research into school principals?
1: So um, I've been involved in school leadership research since Karen Edge plucked me out of a <laughs> open day at the Institute of Education at the age of 19. Um but it was about six to seven years ago, I went to a conference, um, academic conference, uh, educational leadership conference that uh, Chris James, Professor Chris James um, from the University of Bath was running a session on ego. And he was starting to flirt with this idea of the, this, this notion of the ego being the part of our cognitive architecture that's pulling everything in and saying, well, what's going on? um and how that might influence leaders and it was it was a real turning moment for me going into that session um because i came out just fascinated and it was the first time me and chris had met and from that point on became a, a seven-year very close collaboration and friendship um which ultimately led to the phd and where the research came from and I think what's grasped about this notion of, of ego and the stages of ego development is it's both beautifully complex yet also seems to tap into some of the common sense things that we, we just know about how humans work. You know, there's this notion that we don't all make sense of the world in the same way. And we, as we go through life, that changes. Um, just what Jane Lovinger did in the 70s was say, hey, That's the ego, that's the ego doing that job. And it occurs across developmental stages that we go throughout the lifespan, these ego development stages. And we we were just fascinated about the notion of, well, if there are different stages of how we make sense of the world and the problems around us, surely that will come out in how leaders make decisions. Um, and particularly school leaders and a particular interesting aspect about being school leaders that I'll talk about later but um, we were just fascinated by well, does that come out in the decisions we're making does that shape the decisions school leaders are making because if that's the case then that's raising some really interesting questions about you know how we support school leaders the um, sorts of development we put in place for school leaders also how we conceptualize their their role how we conceptualize their the tasks that they have in front of them um, and are they a lot harder than what we give credit for um, and even though we do say head teachers have a hard job all school every work in schools have hard jobs yes absolutely but why is it hard hmm. why is it hard why is it challenging and apart from the sides of it's, we often have a good reason for it being emotionally challenging you know um hard it's hard work um it pulls on our heartstrings yes but why is it cognitively challenging why is it challenging when we look at the tasks they have to do the problems they face the organisations they work in and we thought adult ego development could open up a new way of thinking about that and the sort of challenges that school leaders face and to what extent are they actually really quite hard? Um, so that's that was it for us, really. It was, yeah.
0: And it's, it's really interesting what you were saying there about ego. And obviously, I come from the position of not knowing a lot about, about some of this terminology and what it actually mm. means. But I guess in the wider public understanding of ego or the way it is used when talking about people, um, it mm. is very much this idea of, like, how... You know how you feel about yourself, and how kind of confident you are, and do you have a big ego Mm. or a small ego, and and these these kinds of things. And I'm I'm guessing that is not that is not very helpful uh, baggage to bring to this discussion.
1: Uh, I think it's interesting when people use the phrase "big ego" because often when they're talking about the um, behaviours which focus upon themselves and their own perspective and their own view, we're referring to perhaps stages that come earlier on. In the developmental model. Um, but in this sense, we are very much talking about the ego being that central hub, that uh, central sense making device, that for want of a better term, it's the part of our, our minds that is pulling in what's happening around us, is pulling in what we think, our experiences, our personality, what we've done in the past, um, as what Lovinger describes as his master trait. That, answers the question of well, what's going on here? Um, I'm in a situation I don't quite comprehend or understand and following a chart doesn't quite work. I need to try and make sense of it. Um, and that's what the ego's trying to do. It's that sitting at the center of our psychological world or a cognitive architecture, pulling in everything from around us and from within us to create that narrative, that sense-making that, that allows us then to act we don't know what's going on we can't act we don't know what to do so we have to have something that's working largely in the background lower level of awareness that's pulling the pieces together and all logan just said was hey how the ego does that how the ego does that not what conclusions it comes to but how the ego goes about pulling in different aspects of from our internal world our external world um changes as we go through the lifespan. Um and that's what she documented in her eight stages was how that progressively changes um, through the lifespan.
0: Yeah. And 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 so yeah, it's rather than thinking about it as a something that's sort of completely internal and you know y- you're influencing this ego, it is it is much more what you're saying there about um, you know, part of it is what is what is there in existence already in within and but a lot of it is what you do with that information um from Mm -hmm. from external sources and it's those two things coming together that's that's really helpful um for me as, as we as we go through this conversation that's absolutely fascinating um, research that you that you've done there perhaps it would be good to talk a little bit more about these eight stages um that you that you've referenced there so that people can kind of navigate um further and um a bit of information about how people move between them and what that looks like again yeah, and sure. what happens
1: well, i think just something you picked up on there i think is really important to say about ego because when we start talking about implications it's really important um the beautiful thing about this concept is that it doesn't say humans can control everything that goes on in their environment. It's about what they impose on the world. Equally, it doesn't say that we're just puppets to what goes on around us, that most human function sits in this middle place. This sits in ourselves in relation to our context. And that's so important. We start talking about implications for these stages. Um, and. And how we come to understand ourselves, understand ourselves and our environment. So I think I'm so glad you've made that point, Caroline, because I think that is really important to say. Um, there are eight stages, um, but they they cover the lifespan. So most adults will find themselves in one of potentially three stages. Um, and so I tend to, when I when I talk about it, I tend to focus on less is more, and focus on the three main stage which adults are most likely to find themselves in. It's not to say that they won't be in stages below the ones that I've mentioned or above. Um, It's just that they don't make up the vast majority of human experience. And so I I tend to focus on three biggies, which is self-aware stage, uh, which is the more earlier stage of adult that most adults will find themselves in. The conscientious stage, which is almost in the middle, and then the individualist stage, which is a, the later stages of the three. So it's self-aware, to conscientious, to individualist. There is the stage after the individualist called the autonomous stage, but you're talking about potentially 2% of a population. Um, and then there's a stage called the integrated stage, which is now considered largely theoretical um, because it's just very rare. Um, the stages before the self-aware stage. But they tend not to be so common in adulthood they tend to more describe uh, adolescence
0: yeah i have to say um the the first stage as a parent of a toddler i was like yeah <laughs> impulsive stage <laughs> yeah. but and
1: yeah. but this is what's interesting right so I might would it help to describe a little bit about typically yeah. what what we yeah. yeah so so the self-aware stage it's there there's lots of things in this and if you 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 check out our research paper, we provide a summary of what each of these stages are in Lovenger's terms. Um, What our research did was then look at leadership, how leaders enact these stages. Um, The self-aware stage, we're talking about individuals where it's learning about how to apply the rules. So, you know, maybe the rules don't work all the time, that actually we need to apply those rules, but it's still based, they're still based on what the external environment expects of them. Um, And that could be a rule, that could be a societal expectation, um, but that's what what they focus their their minds upon. Um, Starting to talk about um, cause potentially being a little bit more complex than A plus B C. Um, Starting to think about emotion beyond themselves and very much focusing on their own emotional narrative at this point um when we move to the conscientious stage it almost goes the other way in fact it does go completely the other way where an individual who was thinking about the rule you know guiding their virtue their behavior through external expectation becomes very much about their own internal values so the conscientious stage the big leap is oh i've got this internal set of values um i've discovered these now and that's what's going to be my metric as to whether I do or don't do something or how I feel about something. Um, you know, this is that internal set of expectations, those values, some might refer to it as, um, so kind of increasing awareness of 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 themselves um, and away from self to others and an intense responsibility to others develops where maybe in the self-aware stage is, Bit more toward what can others do for me, it becomes about what can I do for others, and that feeling of in, and it's what Loewen describes at this stage is an intense responsibility for others. Um, there's a, a greater idea of well being, more complex that potentially potentially you know cause an effect not related. Um, that you know, starting to think about aspects of the butterfly effect. They're not fully in. We're starting to recognize that the world's a little bit more complex than previous. Um, and then we move to the individualist stage, which is where the, a lot of the kind of moving from one side to the other, so if you imagine it like a kind of spectrum, actually starts to we start to experience a bit more balance. So that intense responsibility becomes a recognition that we are interdependent on others but we're not independent of them and we're not dependent on them. So it's, I'm here, you're here, um, I'm here to help you, but if you call me at 3 a.m. at night, maybe that's not going to be good for me the next day. Maybe call me at 7 a.m., you know, like it mm. be <laughs> a bit more of a reasonable time. It's that recognition that your needs are as important as the other person's needs and that actually they are interconnected, but they are still separate. Um, so you can see that's a lot more of a complex position moving away from, It's about my needs, about your needs, too. It's about both our needs. Um, It's not about we must follow the rules. It's not about I must follow my internal values. It's about, well, how I've got these set of values and I've got these rules and sometimes they conflict. Um, And that doesn't feel nice, but I've got to tolerate that and find a way to to, to meet the expectations of those around me, knowing when to challenge that, but how to bring my values along with that. So it's not again, it's moving from that binary from rules to values to to this much more complex position, um, where we're weighing up, you know, in what circumstances, can we follow those values? Where do I have to apply the rules as it were, and then moving into that fully appreciation of complexity. So a recognition that, you know, Uh, situations carry on after applying the solution that that just because you put a lot of effort into something a lot of input doesn't mean you're going to get a lot of output out that the world is relatively unpredictable not chaos but there's a recognition that I'm not quite sure what could happen tomorrow and next week I've even got less of sure no matter how great my plan is you know and learning to just tolerate that and this is, this is where these, these stages are so fascinating. That's just, at that stage, it's just tolerating that. It's not seeking out actively and reveling in it. It's that this is still highly uncomfortable. You know, the notion that our external expectations and values can conflict. And we have to find a way of meeting. Again, tolerating that, that still feels horrible. Um, but it, I could learn to tolerate, I can tolerate that, you know um and and so that's it's very interesting when we think about the fact that about 30 to 40 percent of the adults in each of the self-aware and conscientious stage and only really 10 percent get to this individualist stage and and this is where a lot of our interest started coming in because we were looking at this individualist stage and we were just thinking oh my gosh head teachers are asked to do this all the time you know they're asked to balance between the Ofsted handbook and what you know, they feel through their training, expertise, experience, constitutes a good education for young people. You know, the the whether it's it's in the performance management of a colleague, whether it's in the whether or not a child or should not be excluded, um, whether it's in you know, and whether it's in school planning, like actually recognizing the plan by the end of the year might look a bit different, and actually you're going to need to adapt to that. But that's a that's, you know, to- even just tolerating that mm. is something which we understand from the latest research is, is in a, a very small subset of an adult population which they can do naturally they can just do because it's part of how they make sense of the world not to say other stages can't do it but they're going to need a heck of a lot of support to do it and this is where we started getting very excited and interesting and interested to see if these stages do enact in, their, in the way that school leads have to make decisions because if they do, that's then saying that heck, you know, the reason this job is so hard isn't just because you believe it to be so, but because a lot of the expectations of what head teachers have to do day to day, and it is day to day, are implicitly demanding a very high stage of adult ego development. And what's the scaffold to help people? to be engaging in those sorts of ways of thinking bear in mind that it might not come naturally to, to quite a few people and they need that support and development Yeah? No?
0: yeah and what's interesting to me I think is the fact that um you know often have conversations about how it can be difficult to prepare for um school leadership if you know the, the things aren't Easy to sort of explicitly teach, you know. It might depend on the context or the leaders that you see as role models, and a lot of these other things. Whereas in other sectors and in other industries, there is there, is, you know a, a more sort of regimented way for that for that leadership development to happen. But at the same time, what I think is really interesting about what you're saying there is that so much of the, I guess associated activity in schools feels like it can be ordered organized managed you know one of the the the, the interesting observations that sort of i made around the pandemic is you know um it's a body of people who kind of can timetable out their year in september and go i know i'm going to have double lesson with year 10 on a friday afternoon and then you know everything is ripped up remote learning everything changes to, you know what's what's happening and yeah it feels with a lot of the um, the things around it be it the school improvement cycle be it be it the data and, and 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 all of these other things it gives the illusion of i've i've made a decision i've executed a thing i've organized it and it will, yeah. and as you say the reality is that it may not in that way and 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 how to get you know tole- as you say tolerate that in the first instance, and and then actually find a way to um you know keep 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 the faith <laughs> in in the face yeah. of some of that is really interesting.
1: It is, and I think it's I, I think it's when we look at I think this is what, as anything, this is just a useful heuristic for actually making us think harder about. What head teachers have to do and school leaders in general have to do day to day, and really unpacking as to what how hard that is, um, and and this is where I mean Robert Keegan's written a great book. It's literally called In or In Over Our Heads, you know, where actually we look at the he looked at 1994 the demands of then, you know, and that was pre-internet, mm. you know, demands of modern life and how that demands so much more of an adult than we give credit for um, and that we commit for. And this is where, when we started looking at the findings in the research, where we, we expanded on some of these themes. Bear in mind, Logan just stated very very abstract, you know, when we started looking at some of the concrete ways in which these, these come out in school leaders' decisions, that kind of example for us, exemplified that even further. Uh, that took that even further. This notion of oh my gosh, wow, okay, right. There really is quite a lot we're asking head teachers to do because of the inherent part of the job, mm-hmm. the tasks they have, the organisations they work in. They're going to have to work in certain ways, which could be advantageous to the decisions they're making. However, though these are not the most common experience for adults, in so much that they would need support and scaffold like a child would in a classroom. You know, you've given them something hard to do, you've got to put a scaffold in place. Do we ever, or do we ask that as some of the decisions and tasks we ask adults to do? And are we overestimating and overexpecting adults to do these things without thinking harder about the support they need?
0: And and presumably, also a big part of that is just that the, the human aspect mm. of so much of what a school leader is dealing with that is not, mm. you know, widgets in a factory or you know there are not you know simple solution like you know take school in, school improvement if something in school is going wrong you can't just stop it and go like let's turn off the production line let's fix this machine and then start it again um you know like the the sort of the human um uh, component of, of parents pupils staff and sometimes those 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 people's needs come into to to conflict and the individual versus the group yeah it just it seems like endlessly to do with rela- relationships and, um, it, you know, often the kind of history um, going on around any of those as well. Like so many layers to those interactions but, that haven't fully been understood, perhaps.
1: And I think that that's where actually we then we ask the further question of, OK, well, relationships. What, you know, why are human systems like this? You know, why, Why are the tasks like this? We, we did a lot of problematizing. Me and Chris and Sam Carr, um, who who worked very closely with this at the University of Bath as well, um, you know, we spent a lot of time, and it's why it took a long piece of time to do this work because we we started from the ground up of asking, well, why are what why are relationships so tricky? Why is it, you know, and we started looking at a lot of complexity, complexity theory. Um, because that explains a lot of what happens in schools um, as organizations and the notion that schools are largely, you know, complex systems, largely unpredictable, um, you know, cause and effect is not clear, highly networked. Um, and it just happens human systems are exactly the same way. And it's what makes them complex is the human aspect of it. And we look at the sorts of problems school leaders have to deal with. They're, they're largely likely to be wicked um, which is from Richard and Weber's work in the 70s, they looked at this idea of a tame problem versus a wicked problem. And the tame problem is, you, know, you can follow the flowchart. it's predictable, um, set number of variables in the situation. You can, you can have a good go at mapping out the situation yourself and you're gonna be able to do it on your own. Um, you're gonna be largely able to predict the outcome and by the time you applied the solution, the problem can stop. And then you compare that to a wicked problem and this is where school leaders often nod at me and go, oh, yes, and some of the work that we've been doing as following up to this research is kind of is just starting to indicate toward this as well, that school leaders often have to deal with problems that aren't flowcharts, that are hard to describe, that don't just stop once you put a solution in play. Um, And these are wicked problems. You know, they are inherently challenging because I think any problem would be if you can't, have a good go at describing the problem yourself because someone else from a different perspective would look at the problem and take a very valid different lens to it you know um there's no ready made solution that you can apply to it and indeed the solution you're not going to know is going to be right or wrong because it's hard to describe the situation so there's better answer <laughs> might be a worse answer but there's no right or wrong you know? And so that's where we started with this. And, you know, was this, what is it about the leading of these schools? So rather say, you know, that, that's so challenging and just, well, they're complex systems and these wicked problems. And when you're faced in a complex system and because it, the large aspects of it being a human system, um, and indeed you could look at a lot of the problems of education and say they are largely complex and they are largely wicked. Um, well, if you're faced with those problems, you can't just grab the, the book and say, Hey, here's the flowchart. This is what we do. Um, oh, here's the answer. Download it, press play, as you would in a tame problem. You have to think about it, right? You have to, you have to think about it. That process is sense making. And what does sense making? Ego. Mm-hmm. And so we can't discount. This is, this is what, and that took us a good few years to theorize this, this, okay, how does this all relate rather than saying, oh, well, it makes sense making, but why do school leaders have to sense to make? making, well, school leaders have to sense to make because of the nature of schools, but what is the nature of schools? Well, they're complex and they've got wicked problems hmm. and that will place a particular type of cognitive demand when faced with the problems that they produce, you have to think about it you have to think about it and that thinking is sense making and ego um and and this is where it's just so it's it's a game it's it's doing some of the hard thinking that i think in the discipline of educational leadership we haven't done enough of of we, we can't just say schools are about education what is it about schools as institutions as organizations that are largely human systems that are quite strange human systems I mean, there's not many places where the vast majority of, of of the individuals in the building are under the age of 18 and have and have to be there by law. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's scary when you think about it. It's 2,000 children, 200 teachers, and at one point there could be a riot. What do you do? You know, like, it's incredible, really, that, you know, there's not Annika. I mean, it's insane. Um, but, you know, that, that's quite an interesting dynamic. And then outside of that, you potentially have 4,000 carers if you've got 2,000 mm. students, you know, potentially between 3,000 to 4,000 carers, potentially more, you know. And they don't actually walk in the school building most of the time, um, but they are deeply involved. Um, and so there's this hugely, com- deeply complex system that's very unique. We need to do more theorising around that. We need to do more work to ask what is a school as an organisation? and what makes it special because that then untaps research which we think we've started doing into what is it about educational leadership within a school that is special and unique and different and what is it we can learn from other sectors because we can't learn from other sectors until we know what it is we're dealing with does that make sense
0: yeah no absolutely and
1: wicked yeah, uh, it's just, I mean, this is what we found when we were looking at the head teachers was there was just so many sophisticated, tiny things they were doing that was different, and we could trace it back to their AED. And that was what was really interesting about it, This is why we think we've tapped in potentially. Something.
0: And let's jump into exactly, because I mean, a lot of people will be listening to this and thinking, but how on earth did you <laughs> do research? How did we do it? <laughs>
1: Oh, well, we're lucky. So, I mean, we're lucky that Lovinger did. I mean, Jane Lovenger is a real pioneer of psychometrics. And you know what? Like, she is one of those forgotten female psychologists. And it's heartbreaking. um, Because the Wust, the Washington University Census Completion Test, is one of the most robust personality psychometric tests. It's not really personality, but we put it in that group. Um, That exists, and it is still valid today and there's not many tests and that's what's so amazing about the test um this is a psychosocial test so it is you know like keeping that relevant that being able to look at the external environment managing to keep that relevant and designing something that's relevant and still psychometrically valid 30 years later is remarkable so i just want to you know say know you to know about jane Loven just from a feminist perspective of you know there's a a cracking female psychologist Mm -hmm. that no one knows about in this country and we should but um that aside uh the washington university sentence completion test is a uh, questionnaire of around 36 um incomplete sentences um which people answer and then two psychologists can sit with the manual and assess what stage individuals are at So that's how we assess ego. Now, it's important to say we did that at the very, very end of the research. So right up until the last minute, all the data we collected was blind. We did not know what stage anyone was at. And imagine why that's important so that we're not of filling in gaps of our understanding of baby. So everything we did was blind. So you can imagine that was terrifying when we started actually looking, applying some of those stages and thinking, oh crumbs, I hope there's something common across these individuals. Because if not, I'm in trouble. Um, so what we did was um, we asked every head teacher um, about a wicked problem that has happened in their school um, in a recent period of time. We asked them what they felt about it, what they thought about it, and what they did. Um, we also asked them a, a a wicked problem that could happen. So we worked with around 20, I think it was around 20, 25 head teachers that were separate to the sample um, to develop a wicked problem. Um, we asked them to write one of their own and then they almost upvoted their own. So it was a genuine co construction exercise, but essentially we co constructed the these two scenarios, one for primary, one for secondary, um, together. So we had uh, this wiki problem, um, which we then gave head teachers to as well. So we had a recalled wiki problem and an anticipated one. And again, how? what are you thinking around this? What are you feeling? What might you do? Um, but we didn't stop there. We then asked their head of governors and their deputy head, Both for an incident that the head teacher they observed the head teacher in, and what they what the head teacher communicated to them, what the head teacher communicated about their thoughts, their feelings, their actions. We also got them to do the anticipated one from what they would anticipate the head teacher to do. Okay, so around each head teacher, we essentially had six different data points as to how we would expect them, how they would be expected to 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 engage with the wicked problem okay um, we only took into account the ones that were common across all six data points okay um, once we've done that for each head teacher we began to apply their Aed stage and so then we looked at say the uh, I think it's six or seven in the self-aware stage and we looked at the themes that were common across that and we discounted anything that wasn't common. So essentially each theme within the research has around 64 separate data points. They occurred across 64 different times across each individual. So although our sample is small, it means that essentially we can have some more confidence that this is a common feature of this individual in this state of an individual in this stage, because we saw it again occur against a, you know when it was the recall test when it was an anticipated problem, whether it was the deputy head that observed them, whether it's the head teacher that observed themselves or the head of governors, so we could take out power dynamics, we could take out bias, we could take out, you know, um, wanting to see themselves in the best light, because if they said something and the deputy head couldn't corroborate it, it was was scratched off the list. It didn't move forward to the next stage. So the stages we did take forward have really been kind of, pushed through, push through a very intensive process of, of interviews and, um, and different types of tasks. And so, so that's what we did. We, once we knew the head te- stage of each head teacher, we then put them into a group, looked at the common stages, the common themes in each stage, and we then linked that back to AED. And we saw, thankfully, <laughs> there was quite a fair bit of, quite a good overlap. As to oh wow we really can see how AED is shaping this state this individual's decision making in the wicked problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, always, always um, so in awe of of people doing clever research. But yeah, it does really sound like you designed um, a brilliant a brilliant study there to 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 actually move this forward. And in in terms of your kind of main main findings was it was it as you expected what anything that surprised you
1: i i mean uh, I'll always pull people towards the paper and um, for greater information so if you follow me on on twitter um you'll see the first thing on my uh twitter bio is the link um, there is and we'll a free pop to access, it in pop the, the
0: link to this podcast as well great
1: right. because there is a free free access copy of the paper, so you don 't have to be behind the paywall to get it so don 't worry um, but the main things we found was that the the differences between each stage was quite substantive and developmentally incremental, so we saw there was each feature itself aware stage became further developed to the conscientious and further developed to the individualist i 'll say some of the things that surprised me the first one was this idea of um, sense-making, sense self-sense-making. So at the self-aware stage, um, how did head teachers engage with the task? They wanted hard evidence. They would take this evidence in from those around them, make sense of the problem, and then delegate accordingly. So it was very much self within self. A conscientious stage, last, more comfortable with like less hard evidence, more explanation, why is this happening, why is this happening? The process would then be self-sense-made, so I think through the problem myself, and then I will grab this we call them the Jedi Council, a trusted set of of individuals um, to share how they um, come up with the problem and look for validation um, you know this is what I think how good is it you know? um and this I'm not saying is critical to anyone because ultimately you know people are leading schools across the sector and doing a very good job it's 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 not a judgment thing it's about this is just how people tend to work the problem out and it was only at the individualist stage where that collaboration really kicks in true collaboration being that I've had a conversation with you and through that conversation we've built an understanding of the situation together that actually looked different before the conversation happened. Right. And so the this head teacher would go around having conversations with a range of different people outside of the leadership hierarchy um and they would they would be craft every time it would just be pulling different parts of the jigsaw together and so it was we asked this question which we don't report much on about which is like, how did those around the head teacher see this person and so remember just some people describing their their head teacher happen to be individualist as magical they can just seem to put their finger on the problem and they think it's some kind of almost like divine intervention and it isn't because actually the way they made sense of the problem incorporated so many different perspectives and views that by the time they'd got there everyone felt they'd been heard everyone could see where the head teacher was coming from and critically could point to a more complex position than could have on their own because it incorporated that that collaboration And, and what does that show well it shows an awareness of mutuality you know i'm you you're me we're mutual we we're discovering this problem together Um, It shows a a comfort, that comfortableness with relative unpredictability, like I'm not going to know quite what's going to happen here. Um, That cause can be multiple. There can be multiple different perspectives here. And it's about trying to find a way through. And so that was the big, that was one big surprise, was just how collaboration, that true sense of collaboration, that mutual co-construction is at that later stage. Because that, again, shows this is really hard, you know, you walk into any room, and the tables are together, you're expected to collaborate, expected to work on the problem together, just by the virtue of the setup of the room, yet it's a really hard thing to do, and how many times do we as adults actually really experience that mutual collaboration, or is it just a couple of people actually leading the meeting, and we're there offering a little bit here and there, Um, that was the first thing, and the second part the second surprise for me was just how how this idea of complexity really emerged, and how in the earlier stages the situation is more linear, and then moving into that conscientious stage, like there was almost it was fascinating some of the conversations we're having because the in the conscientious stage when we talk about mapping the problem out. It would start quite wide. It identified various different variables. But over time, it would just become narrow. It was almost like, I can see the complexity, but I just, I need to manage it. I need to manage it in some way because it's just too much. And over time, it would move to that one variable. So I thought of all these things, but you know, toward the end, I discounted this, this, and we just decided to focus on their well being. Whereas in the individual stage, that lens was held for longer um the conscientious stage recognition of emotion being important in the decision-making process but it was controlled um and held down or they, they, they there'd be moments where they just would want to think about the problem rather than incorporating it within the problem which is in the individualist stage and then finally there was this notion of I'm trying to find the way of putting it It was in this this notion of trying to control the complexity. I can see the complexity, I need to control the complexity, I need to manage it and minimalize it. Um, Where common features would be in a board meeting, they'd read from a script, or there'd be the the phone calls around, like there's one incident where um, someone described how the head teacher would call every single member of the governing body to talk about what they were going to talk about the meeting so when it came to the meeting that meeting which could be that moment for that you know discussion actually became a validation event you know and so you know it was a managed process um and it's only at the individualist stage where that was allowed more to happen Mm. and so when we think about these things, these kind of surprises, why are they, why are they important? Because it, I think we come back to well, in a wicked problem, in a complex situation, no, you can't do it on your own, um, and they are inherently complex. And if if they if they do require that degree of collaborative working, if they do require that tolerance for not just hard facts, but that sort of I know what you tell me, what you really think, mm. what you really think, what's that intuitive judgment? Tell me what's you know working away on you know, that tolerance for emergence how are we recognizing that most adults will find that incredibly hard one in and of itself and that's them working at their best fyi mm. that is them working at their best however as we said at the beginning adult ego sits between ourselves and the world it's not what we do regardless. You know, if we're, you could have a room full of individuals at this individualist stage, but like any psychological capacity, if you put too much stress on them, what do they do? Regress. They move to earlier stages in order to feel safer. You know, it's the same with memory. What happens if we, we stress our memory falls, falls? You know, like how we express our personality changes according to how our, our, our exposure to stress. And so, I mean, and this is where the whole framework is really useful because it could be so dangerous to fall into the narrative of every head teacher must be an individualist. Mm, no, it's more that this occurs at a relatively late stage of development. We need to think about the context people are working in because you could have a room full of individualists and they could be acting impulsive. Um, and in fact, this is why I stopped talking about the early stages because I would talk about, like, say, I put all the, the space on the board and you know the impulsive stage where thinking about self just reacting to, to the situation in front of you and i would say at the start of the meeting look like we're not going to consider these three earlier stages because it's very unlikely you've got an adult in your building at these stages and someone would come up to me at the end and say look i know you say that neil but i swear i swear my head teaches at the impulsive stage and i go well is it because they are at the impulsive stage well because demands being placed on them are so great that they are forcing an individual into an earlier stage of development and that's what's driving it like mm. are, you, are you seeing that them or are you seeing what the situation is is forcing them into does that make sense
0: Mm, and, and as you're explaining as well, like, um, you know, that that longer sense making process, that involvement of more individuals, that that collaboration, you know, that is something that that is, is powerful and obviously effective in in certain circumstances. Yes. And, you yeah. know, a, a lot of the the ways in which um school leaders are are working, you know, some of those, you know, di- really difficult judgments may have to be made quickly if a child, like a child safety, is in the mix, you know. Yeah. Um. So it's it, even even somebody who has developed to this further extent, um, might just have to get the facts the rules the law and just do something um in in a moment and and, the situation demands um, it
1: and you've just described a tame problem in which Mm. case that is not a you know this is the thing about the ego stages that only thought they're only really relevant when you have to stop and really think hard because there is not an easy answer Mm -hmm. like um you know for for a lot of people that aren't very senior in a in a school safeguarding is a classic example of something that looks wicked because it's emotionally <sighs> breathtaking and hard mm. to deal with but relatively tame because you follow the flowchart there is a set of criteria and a set of actions which you must take and someone to do it toward you know you go to your safeguarding lead not that you go to this safeguarding lead this mm. is what you say this is how you behave and for that individual past that point it's over Mm. the decisions moved on so for them the solution has been found i have told someone it might carry on emotively but the situation the circumstance itself starts with a wicked problem when we're forced into that thinking process it's not about you know that that collaboration could be three minutes long it it it, it could be 30 minutes long. It could be three days. It's not about time scale, but it's about well, how have you gone about establishing what you're going to do and how you're going to act in whatever time frame it might be. But as you say, we need to be aware that in certain circumstances, whether that's because it's tame or whether because stress prevents us from working in a way that we would ideally envisage of ourselves and know what we're capable of doing i'm absolutely positively convinced that we can think of times where we've gone why did i do that why did i make that why did i do it in that way that's not me and that this is what i'm hoping this works Lovinger's work adult ego development our research is pointing to is well this is why actually it isn't you at your fullest you know stage of development it's you working when that's being held back a little bit because of the contextual pressure, um, but equally, you know, what scaffolds do we put in place for when we need that collaboration to happen? When we need to consider a broader range of evidence that isn't necessarily hard evidence, you know, statistical evidence. You know, what what support are we putting in place when actually the situation is relatively unpredictable, that it could change? Um, bearing in mind that most adults. We'll be at a sense-making stage where that is not there um, that's not where they're, they're, they're thinking at this moment in time. So how do we scaffold to that? How do we help you know, individuals' developmentally, long-term leadership development, but also at the moment, at that meeting, what, what scaffold do we put in place at the meeting to make that happen? What prompts and cues can we give for individuals to consider and reflect? Different ways of working, you know. Are we thinking about that on such a micro level as collaboration? I don't think we are. Mm. I think we just assume most people are very good at it because we can talk. But then we actually study how people talk and have engagement. Collaboration is very different.
0: Exactly, and when you know, there's that. There often feels like there's this kind of burning pressure for a solution, um rather than necessarily mm. the the breathing space to. To, to come to something more more fully formed. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm I'm interested in as obviously we've talked we've talked quite a bit about the the different environment that somebody who's a school leader is working in as opposed to mm-hmm. a kind of leader in in other sectors. But I, I'm just curious to kind of um ask whether there are any other other aspects of of that difference or any other research that's happened in other 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 areas of leadership
1: yeah i think i think the first thing is that there's something inherent to the nature of education that makes a wicked problem special and i do think it's the technical aspect and i do think it's the domain knowledge aspect of it and i think that's something we need to continue to explore i really do think that that you know that narrative is a very important one because we haven't thought about it enough But I think there's something inherent to the nature of education that changes the nature of these wicked problems. You know, we're, you know, we're talking about people's lives going forward. That, that in its, in of itself means we're trying to predict the future. (laughs) Yeah, we're trying to predict the future. And, you know, systems are relatively, complex systems are relatively unpredictable. So how do you go about doing that, you know? we have no agreed answer for what education is and what learning is you know in other sectors there is more ready readily agreed outcomes that everyone can universally agree on you know medicine don't die (laughs) you know like law achieve outcome for client um you know banking um achieve or in private sector you know you know a good return for for stakeholders for for charities it's it's the agreed outcomes for the client base the charity is is representing in education we haven't even agreed what learning is and it's so contentious so you know if we think about educational leadership leadership being influence, education being as we think then right how do we influence education? How do we influence it? We can't agree what it is. <laughs> you know, like, and so that is an, a, a fundamentally mammoth complex challenge. But saying that if you get someone from healthcare leadership, I'm sure they would say exactly the same thing about their discipline. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. Assuming that outcomes are more readily agreed. Um, I'm sure that they'd say the same thing. But I think there's something about the educational aspect of it. That's, that makes it unique and demanding compared to other sectors. Um, I do think we can always look at the the generic concept of influence and ask you know are there ideas that we can explore critically from other disciplines but we need to start that from the lens of what is education and what are we trying to influence rather than we have a, a group of we have a building and we have people in it and therefore that's that is the same as whether it's a hospital or uh uh, hospitality
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or finance and banking. I don't think that's the case. I think the moment you put the word education in there, it changes the direction, the motivation, the thinking, the background, every conceivable aspect, even the shape of the building.
0: Yeah, and and as you and as you said, sort of uh, earlier on, like these these children kind of have to be there by law. Yes, <laughs> and in a lot of those other scenarios um individuals have a choice and um you know also the customer is potentially you know always right it's different obviously in a medical setting in the in the but you know like those people can get up and leave if they don't like the service or you know you're 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 measured on 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 their feedback and uh yeah that's sort of not not the transaction that's happening in in education you're you're making Mm. decisions and and choices that will impact on those young people their families their future Mm. lives um but Mm. you're not really you know it's not up for them to debate them um otherwise you'd not get a lot done But
1: but i do think we need to do a lot more work as a discipline on that and i think other texts probably say the same thing that you know how is it the nature of education shapes and what education is and what schools are, you know? Because if we we need that solid knowledge, that solid work, that's not of theory. I'm not ashamed to say theory. Theory helps people. Theory helps, provides heuristics to help us understand the world. You know, the world's a complex place. Theory helps us to understand that. Um, and I think until we've got the grasp of that, you know, we will we'll constantly have this kind of domain-specific, domain-general debate. Um, I do think it's specific, but I do think that we need to do a lot more to build the case for it.
0: Yes. And, you know, obviously sort of Im- implied by what you've discovered about e- ego, ego development and then that, how that impacts on how somebody behaves as a leader also shows mm. how important experience is really Mm. um and and Mm. you know and it it isn't you know you can sort of want to be this or that type of leader um but you know until that kind of that that ego piece sort of catch catches up with you um you won't be that person who manages to like you say pull a solution out of thin air that everybody is on board with you know that
1: i i think you're right and i think it's experience and experiences i think this is what i always say experiences like you could have someone doing the same thing for 30 years and actually have acquired very little experience because they've been on repeat you know actually someone you know we're talking about so this is when we talk about development of stages we we, we talk about the concept of disequilibriating experience um, experiences that make that expose that the way we are conceptualizing the problem might be fundamentally flawed, and that we might need to think again. Um, and they are uncomfortable experiences because we don't really like being wrong. Like a lot of our cognitive architecture is about not being wrong. <laughs> um, it's about, you know, like, um, you know, a lot of it is about not being wrong. Um, and so having exposed to ourselves that we are not just wrong, but not in this scenario, but how we potentially conceptualize every situation at this point is wrong um is a terrifying concept um, and we, we part of the way we get that is through those disequilibrating experiences where we're exposed to that um, you you know you could have 27 year old who's been through so many different experiences in their life quality high quality disequilibriating experiences which they've received support to grow through and they could be at an individual stage equally could get someone who's 60 and hasn't had those experiences or hasn't had that development of those opportunities to grow and be itself aware, you know, and this is where that experience and, and, and just to say as well, like ego is, there isn't a work ego. There isn't a home ego. It is our central sense-making device. So this, we should be looking at experiences outside of the professional realm as well. Like, you know, um, we know, for example, that divorce apparently would actually promoted some people's stage of ego development. So even negative outside experiences and positive you know, experiences. So this isn't just about work experience and experiences. It's acknowledging that we have a human here and that actually that sort of development, not the full picture, can be promoted by a range of experiences, personal and professional. And... You know i i can say for myself having you know my i found my experience of having children fundamentally changed how i made sense of the world not just in a content way but how i was weighing it up that for me personally we know these are deeply personal things it's not like you know you, you go through these experiences and it works um they have to be disequilibrating to the individual um and and so hopefully it just opens up this narrative development to be something potentially a bit broader.
0: And presumably um, some degree of, um, you know, reflection on those disequil- yeah. equilibriating experiences as well. Yeah, safe,
1: and that's it. has to be in a safe space. So if you're put into a, you know, we know it's about children. It's no different to adults. You know, if they're put into a circumstance where they are shown to be wrong and they don't, there isn't support around them, they're actually more likely to repeat mistake. You know, <laughs> they double down, as it were. And adults are the same. Like, we've we come entrenched if we don't feel safe to embrace the learning there. And that's having a supportive environment. That's engaging in those and having the support to engage in learning from that experience. You know, that reflective practice, not just asking someone to go off and reflect, but actually showing and helping. And having someone to talk through that experience with that's what facilitates this sort of growth. Although we're doing a lot of work on this, this is where our Erasmus project, we think, really, we're hoping is going to make a really big difference, um, um, which is what me, Elizabeth Ward and Catherine Morgan are working on through the university. Um, so we're hoping that that's going to, to start to produce some resources and tools that might be helpful
0: fantastic and i was going to say yes that you, you obviously um, started to uncover a, a lot of really interesting avenues for for further research uh, and just mm. wanted if there's anything we wanted to share with with listeners that we should uh keep our eyes open for
1: yeah so on the paper that is um, available at the moment is paper 1 we've actually got more results to produce um <laughs> which is more about how you know so the paper one was very much about okay these are the practical things that you might see here. The paper two is conceptual. It's about um, in terms of how her teacher at this stage actually comprehend complexity, comprehend their organisations as complex systems, um, and the difference is there. So that we couldn't cram that into the paper one, so we split that up into paper two. <laughs> and this is paper two, we're producing some papers around the research method as well. Um, we, as I said, very exciting is the R Erasmus project, um, which is called Getting Heads Together. It is a multi-European project. So we're working with, with partners from Greece and Poland and Lithuania and Turkey, um, with um, Matt Evans from Farmers School um, as well, Catherine Morgan, Elizabeth Ward, um, where we are looking at well, how can we develop curriculum um, and resources um, for free. And it'll be all freely available via, the, via our website when we, when we finish the project um, for school leaders, multi-academy trusts, local authority, education authorities to be helping school leaders to develop further in their stages of, of, of sense-making, you know, um, and providing those scaffolding structures, recognizing this is hard. Um, and so we'll be, that's what we're working on at the moment. Very exciting. We're first year in for that project. Um, so that's what we're doing there. And also just as an open invite to to multi-academy trusts, local education authorities, uh, schools, um, you know, if you're interested in this sort of work and you feel it might help your leadership capacity to get in touch because we do have resource to to essentially, we are looking to increase our sample. Um, and that would involve giving you free feedback and, you know, we can come in, assess school leaders, um, pretty much for free, um, to help increase our sample. Fantastic.
0: Um, and
1: Fantastic. so that we can validate these, these, these findings. Um, we don't want to just stick at 20, we want to go to 200 and then say, produce another paper and say, Hey, look, increase our sample. These are the things we're much more confident on now. These are the things we're not so much confident now. Now to kind of really kind of ramp up the kind of the, the validity of of the work we know this is exploratory we know this is you know the first steps this hasn't been done before and so you know we very much view this as the start of 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 a journey and always keen to speak to people who um want to continue that journey with us, whether it's doing the phd whether it's you know getting involved in one of the research projects that's that's running that'd be fantastic
0: Brilliant stuff and uh, yeah we'll put some some details in the uh, notes for the podcast. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before closing?
1: um just to say thank you to everyone who's engaged with this so far whether it's you've been to the talk um, whether it's you participated in the study um, whether you want to participate in further studies um you know it, it's we hope it's really exciting um we think it's exciting while so we're doing the work um But we, you know, we just—I suppose it's just—if you feel that this is of interest to you, just get in touch. You know, please do get in touch, and you know, we'd love to hear from you um, and to involve you in some way in what we're doing, um, because we know this is new territory for the field, and we just hope that there's there's opportunity. People see opportunity in this and want to get involved. So please do reach out. Um, And thank you for everyone who's got us this far, really. I think the other aspect of this research that I think is really powerful is it legitimises further that the role of the school leader is incredibly hard. And it isn't just because it's hard with the toll it takes on emotion, but because it it asks us to do some pretty high-flying cognitive gymnastics. You know, the inherent nature of the task. The complexity within the organisation demands us day to day to work in a very complex way that is, for most adults, not where they're at at that moment in their lives. And so, to anyone listening to this, I just want you to to feel you can give yourself a bit of a hug (laughs) because actually, it really is that hard. It it really is. No, it's not because you're flawed. It's not because you're failed. It's not because you're this or that. It's because it really is that hard, and your job really is asking you to do some incredibly hard things. And that shouldn't be reasons for us to beat ourselves up. That should be, we you know, we, we look at how we can develop, we can look, look how we grow, but we also need to balance that with reassuring ourselves that it's okay to find this challenging, it's okay to find this difficult because it actually is um, beyond the emotion of it. It's cognitively very challenging. So I hope if, if anything doesn't in just, just inspire, people, inspire people to think about their own personal and professional development also to provide themselves with the reassurance that they're being asked to do something very challenging in a complex world.
0: Well and thank you Neil for taking the time to discuss this absolutely fascinating work that you're doing and wish you well with all your further endeavours and thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.